You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The Maui Invasive Species Committee is actively working eight different sites where little fire ants have been reported on the Valley Isle. We talked to Lisa Stroherker and Brooke Mannequin of the Maui Invasive Species Committee about the snapshot treating 150 acres in a remote area of Nahiku using a new aerial treatment. Well, it's hard to say exactly how things went because what we need to do is go in and do a comprehensive survey of the area to figure that out. We have done some preliminary surveys, and it indicates that the density of ants is dropping down drastically. But well, that's good. That is good. Um, we have done nine treatments to date, and we have four more scheduled. And in June, we plan to do that very large survey. Right now, our the picture, if you will, of the infested area is made of a composite of much effort over time, several surveys over the years, and so we know what the infestation looks like, but we need to be able to capture a snapshot in time. So we're planning on a very large, all-staff effort to go out and survey the entire infestation over a week's time. We're going to go camp in the area and survey day after day, and hopefully we will get a picture of what it looks like now. How large of a group do you hope to get? As many people as we can get from our other projects to come help us. So I think maybe around 30 or so people. Well, I have to ask, you know, because we've had a couple of shutdowns this year, what have been the challenges? Well, we have protocols to keep us safe while we're doing the work. But a lot of our work is done outside, so it's easy to social distance outside. One of the biggest problems we have are a number of vehicles. So a lot of us are using personal vehicles to get to our locations, our sites where we do the work. And we can once we're there, it's, it's usually fairly easy to social distance, but it is very difficult to always keep that in mind and make sure that everybody is staying safe. And Lisa, uh, jump in here. I mean, uh, what has it been like, uh, you know, from your perspective? What are you hearing you know, from the public, have we had more reports come in this year? Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think we did um, a campaign. I think people are spending more time in their yards, in their backyards. Um, we did a campaign like we normally do after we find a new infestation of little fire ants. So we sent out some mailers to the community and asked them to just survey and test their yard. And we got an unprecedented number of samples of ants sent into us. You know, normally we get one or two ants a month or samples a month, and we got up almost 30. So people so. are definitely, uh, they're, they're out there, and um, uh, we've got a little bit more, I guess, range. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think people are paying closer attention. So, I mean, you know, without a doubt, I think um, the good thing about our Little Fire Ant program is that we've had so much community support so far. Um, 11 of our 17 incidences or, you know, occurrences of little fire ants on Maui have been reported by the community. So that's the way how we found out about them is people were concerned and they said in ant samples or called us. Um, and so we really depend on that community awareness. I mean, I think, you know, with, with COVID-19, we realized that we're all in this together. Um, and, you know, that applies for our little fire ant, you know, detection strategy as well. So, you know, we've got Department of Ag looking at the borders and helping us trace forward and trace back. Um, and But our crews are out there controlling, and we just need everybody out there looking and sending in samples of ants when they can. So you're in contact with uh, the various groups on the different islands? Yeah. No, I mean, there's a network of, um, you know, invasive species committees throughout the state. And so we all partner and do, you know, updates together and work together on outreach programs and things like that. So we just finished Little Fire Ant Awareness Month, for example, um, and so encourage people to send in samples of ants. We um, emphasized our social media reach much more this year, this last year. Um, I think more people are, you know, on social media, so we, we invested more in that and did a campaign through some of the uh, like news stations and things. So putting, you know, more advertising, more advertisement online, definitely this year. And then there are, you know, shifting to webinars for training, things like that. And it's actually, you know, to some degree, I think we've had greater attendance. Um, I don't know if people are looking for something to do, but, you know, it's a great way to reach people that we might not otherwise. So, you know, they don't have to drive to a site to go to a training or see something. So they can just attend virtually. 
And then, Brooke, can you talk about, you know, the aerial treatment that you folks were ex- experimenting with there in Maui? I mean, you know, how is our funding for that program? I mean, any chance that that will be expanded? Yeah, so like I said, we have four more treatments planned and then this big survey. And that survey will direct the future of the work. And I expect that we will probably continue on with the aerial treatment, which is very expensive. However, the county of Maui has been very supportive and we are receiving funding that should support this project for another year. Explain to our listeners what that survey will look like on the ground. That will consist of crews of people. Each individual will have a map on a tablet so that they can view real time. They will have areas, spots of land to hit with their samples where they're going to need to drop their little vial with peanut butter. The day before the survey starts, I'm going to have crews go through and cut trail through the forest, the jungle, because it's a very dense, densely vegetated area. So they're going to have to clear their own path beforehand to get ready to do the survey. And then the remaining days of the week, they'll be out there all day long, placing a little vial with peanut butter in it, leaving it there for an hour, coming back and picking it up, and taking a GPS point, putting a number on it, storing it in a Ziploc bag until it can go to our biologist who will review it under a microscope and then identify it as little fire ants or not. And then we can make a map full of dots showing where the little fire ants are and they aren't, and that will be what guides the work that we do. We won't be able to get everywhere we need to go because there's a lot of how bush, and as you probably know, it's impenetrable without heavy machinery, and so we won't be going in those areas. We have to make certain assumptions about the presence or absence of ants in those areas, and so we generally will be treating those anyways from the air because we can't get in there to verify whether ants are there or not. And Lisa, uh, can you talk about how these ants uh, might have gotten there in the first place? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, they're moved basically anytime soil could be moved. They can be moved um, as the population of little fire ants has gotten more dense on Big Island. There's likely more ants moving throughout the state. Um, most of the cases we found on Maui, the ants have been there for several years, so we can't pinpoint it back to you know something like, okay, it was from this potted plant or something like this. There's been a few times where we have been able to pinpoint it, and you know, one example was a man who was building a home in Hana area, and he chipped over shingles from his kilo house, and it turns out the, the shingles had been stored outside, and there were little fire ants that had been on the shingles. And so before those even, you know, were unpacked, we realized it. And, you know, they tested and found little fire ants and checked for it. And again, it was a community, you know, a concerned community member thinking like this is an item of risk just because it's been stored outside. So, you know, they can move in all kinds of different things, you know, both the, the increased amount of ants on Big Island and also moving throughout the state. Right. But it's, but it's not just plants, not nursery material. It's not. Yeah, not just nursery material. I mean, they see them moving in couches, cars, anything. Um, the most recent detection, actually, uh, the people decided to report them because they were getting stung while they were inside their home, while they were sleeping in their beds. So the ants, you know, though their ideal habitat is outside, once they get so dense, they end up moving inside. And then now, so, if yeah. I recall, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brooke, but the area or the the ants spread i think because it was what uh, wasn't like one of the homes near a stream right so people move little fire ants but also waterways too and we've seen that happen at a couple of sites but in the case of the Nihiku infestation where we're using the helicopter they were likely introduced at a stream right by a stream up the mountain somebody's house and they flowed downstream so it created this very linear, long infestation on either side of the stream. We've had a couple of infestations on Maui right on some streams, and so we've gone all the way down the stream surveying to make sure that those ants haven't moved downstream, all the way down to the ocean. And it's, it's a lot of work in some cases when the stream, when the site is far away from the ocean and the stream is full of waterfalls and very steep. We have to access 
people's properties and figure out who lives there and make sure it's okay to survey all the way down to make sure that those ants haven't moved. All right, but that's something that homeowners need to be mindful of. Absolutely, yes. There isn't that many infestations here. There's 17 that we know of on Maui. So most homeowners, if they have an infestation, we're working on it for them. So they're not having to go do their own control work at this point in time like they do on the Big Island. On the Big Island, it's a totally different case scenario over there. The homeowners have to do their own treatment because there's no chance of eradicating little fire ants at this point in time on the Big Island. We just need everyone to be uh, on the lookout, no matter what island you're on, because we want to contain the spread. Absolutely. It's definitely on. It's a new norm. So anytime you're bringing anything to your property that you know could potentially have little fire ants, we're stuck in. Um, and it's just as something you can do to protect your community, your home, your pets, your family and our environment. So there's 17 known sites where infestations have occurred, and right now only eight of them are active. The remaining sites are either being monitored because we've gotten rid of the ants, and so we continue to go back and make sure that they indeed are gone. And after five years of monitoring, then we'll label that site as eradicated, and we'll quit going back to survey. So we have two sites that calling eradicated here on Maui and several others that are monitoring, but eight of them are active sites out of 17 in total. Anything else uh, be good to underscore, Lisa? I Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it's it's been really successful. I think that for the most part, our um, treatment protocol has proven effective. Um, so we know how to get rid of the ants um, once we find them. We just need help finding them. Um, so like Brooke was saying, you know, it's, it's a very... I don't know, I guess logical, laid out, um, systematic approach to getting rid of them, and it works. It's really effective. Um, but we, where we need help is community reporting and finding these ants before they become so widespread. That was Lisa Strohecker and Brooke Mankin of the Maui Invasive Species Committee. Here on Oahu in 2020, there were several reports from the community of new infestations. Uh, there's one case at Sunset Beach, two parcels along Kahala Avenue, and another in Lower Makiki. There are active cases on five properties in Ainahaina and around a condo complex in Kaneohe. There is also monitoring underway in Laie, as well as Paoa, Lanikai, and Kualoa Ranch. So far, there have been no reports of ants on Lanai and Molokai. For links to the hotline and the statewide reports, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Aloha Air Cargo, wishing all safe and warm holidays, announcing a new Seattle location, offering five flights weekly from Honolulu to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. AlohaAirCargo.com Whether you listen for a few minutes at a time or all day long, whether you tune in for hard news or something a little less serious, when you listen to HPR One, you count on us to be a part of your day. Our end-of-year fun drive is coming up. Help us continue bringing you the quality content you rely on. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org and become a first-time member at $10 a month. Or, if you've given before, consider an additional gift. And thanks. Amy Poehler, why do you think it's okay to read other people's journals and sniff through their stuff? I know, it's terrible. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joaquin Phoenix, and he stars... And I'm sorry. Amy Schumer, welcome to Fresh Air. Were you always comfortable talking about sex in front of a microphone? I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. My guest Jay-Z has been incredibly successful as a rapper. You know how a lot of hip-hop artists, when they're on stage, they kind of like grab their crotch? <laughs> yeah, I have a great explanation for that. Weekdays at 3 p.m. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look back to the days when every facet of civilian life was regulated by martial law. At 4.30 on the afternoon of the Pearl Harbor attack, the territorial governor, Joseph Poindexter, handed his administrative powers over to a military governor. That meant that all civilians in Hawaii were subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Civilian courts were replaced with military tribunals, and every citizen over the age of six had to carry a personal identification card. Wardens patrolled neighborhoods to enforce a blackout between 6 p.m. and 6 in the morning. Food and gas rationing were in force, and alcohol was forbidden. Your quiz question this morning, who was the military governor of Hawaii during the Second World War? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. think that native Hawaiian birds would have Hawaiian names, but those names may have died out over time. A nomenclature naming committee has been tasked with proposing names for some of our native species. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs cultural specialists are helping to host a webinar tomorrow to get public input. We talked to Hoku Pihana, who is with the Papahanao Makuakea Working Group charged with the naming process. The four birds that we were asked to name were the Tristam storm petrel, which comes from the family Hydrobatidae. Excuse me if I mispronounce that. So that was one of them. The Christmas or chocolate shearwater, the Pufinus nevitatus. And then we also were asked to name the Bonin petrel, Petrodroma hypolosa. And then finally, we were asked to name the Blue Nabi which is the Anocerulea. And so tell us about the Hawaiian names. Okay, so the Hawaiian names that we were given, that we gave these particular birds, relate to their behavior, their locations, their relationship to place, their, their migration patterns, so on and so forth. So for the first one that we named, the, um, the Bonin Petrel, we named that one Nunulu. And Nunulu speaks to the growling, the warbling, or reverberating energies that are happening. And it also ties into the Naomakua Hawaiian creation chant, which um, expresses Nunulu Ikalani in line 7. And that refers to the sky that's filled with activities, with activity that reverberates it and, and brings action. So with these birds... One thing that we noted in trying to identify the name for them is their annual migration patterns. When they come home to the islands, their their flocks are just really dense in the in the sky that it almost appears as if they've blackened it and they've changed the colors of of their realms and in this place as they're coming home. And we also felt that it was important to preserve and recognize this behavior. 
um, especially because of their habitats um, being threatened by climate change and sea level rise. So what's happening with these particular birds, the Nunulu and the Bonin Petrel, is that we're translocating them from the um, from Papahanaumokuakea, the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, to the main Hawaiian Islands because of these changes. And so we wanted to really um, nest in the name, the remembrance of these behaviors and these activities that the birds have as we move and translocate them into a new space. Wow. So new names and new homes. Right. Yeah. So and, and, and then ancestral connection. So it kind of feeds that genealogy of their of their voyage, their journey. And so what's involved when you throw these names around? You know, you've got this committee that does this research and, and you just try and figure out what's most appropriate and then get a consensus. Yeah. So the nomenclature naming, naming, uh, naming committee is. It's a subgroup of the larger cultural working group. So we've got a good cohort of about 10 um, active members, and then we also have other members that come in to contribute to the naming process. And the biggest thing that we um, we focus on is um, pushing the agenda to reclaiming our spaces and building those relationships and recognizing what those relationships create in the naming process as we um, develop these names. So. How do these relationships to place, the, envi- the the organism, so on and so forth, contribute to the name that's given to this, this species that we've been asked to name? And then we also um, look at the perpetuation of practice. So naming is something that often all of us do it throughout generations, throughout peoples, throughout cultures. And it's a way for us to connect to whether it be a place, an organism, um, a new something new to us, right? It's a, it's something that helps us establish our our relationship with that with that place or organism, and then um, so that is another key component of what we do is perpetuating that naming practice, knowing that it can be really deep and personal and ancestral, or it can be very light and fun. You know, with friends, I was just thinking of some names here locally that carry different identities. You know, you have the Native Hawaiian names that are given. You've got names that are given by people who have come and gone from that place and so on and so forth. So it's an ever-changing, always-moving practice. And for us, it's really being part of that conversation and creating a structure and format that is within how we identify culturally and ancestrally to these practices and places. So for Tristam Storm Petrol, we chose the name Akihi Ke'e Hiale. And so this speaks to the behavior of the bird. And it means, so akihi ke hiale means the bird that steps on water. And this was often an observation that was made throughout time about the behavior of this bird. And it goes back to um, a translation of a bird that was written in the old writings of Kepelino. So Kepelino um, had described the foraging behaviors and the physical features of this bird, but he didn't know what exactly this bird was. So for this particular bird, the, practice, the, um, the way that we came about this name was looking at the historical documentation of, that's been written um, over time. And so that was where we pulled this name from because we felt that it had already been observed by ancestors and people have documented but they didn't recognize that it was this Tristram storm petrel. So we felt that that was important to keep that connection um, between those who had identified it um, earlier and, you know, decades and decades ago um, to now. So that kind of exemplifies that genealogy, that perpetuation of practice. So the blue knotty was another one that we were really tossing around. So this one in particular was given two names, Hunoku and Manuohina. And the reason for this was because there was, there was a connection to this organism, this, this particular bird that related to the white tern, Manuoku. We were wanting to tie that in and bring in the more feminine identity of Manuoku with the, um, with the blue nari and giving that identity as Manuohina. But then 
we also were recognizing the hunooku behaviors of this species too, so we were tossing it back and forth as to trying to understand was it hunooku and manuohina, and so that was where we came to this realization that we can give two names, and it kind of opens up to if you want to, you know, use uh, hunooku or manuohina, then it was just your personal preference, and that was kind of the beauty of that one because we were getting stuck. We liked them both, and we we posed them both, we posed both names to the larger group, and it, we none of us could come up with one or the other. And so this webinar that's happening, you want people mm-hmm. to give their two cents? Yeah, I would say that's part of the naming process. Our subcommittee kind of it comprises of a core of us that are really committed to this practice. And then when we see others, so perhaps I don't have a strong bird background, but others do. So we invite them to come in and share the things that they may know about this bird. And that helps us to understand names that are fitting. And then you have other species that you will be naming also in the future? I think the overarching thing that I want to express about our naming process, because all of us have different practices in how we name things. So one thing that's a big component of our naming process is that we, the process comes from our experiences and we engage all of our six senses, not just our five physical, but also the na'au sense. And we use them collectively to bring about and evoke the names that we see that we see fit for these organisms. So it's not looking two-dimensionally at just the physical attributes and the environmental attributes of a particular place or organism. It's also those other things that we come into contact with, such as what we see, what we smell, what we hear, what we touch, and what we feel. That was Hoku Pihana. Uh, she's with the group that is working on naming a number of species at Papahanao Makuakea. She says that they will be na- naming a number of seaweed discovered at the monument and also sea mounts in the area. For links to tomorrow's webinar, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. <music> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminals to continue serving Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Coronavirus patients are receiving many different treatments that have been fast-tracked by the FDA for immediate use, even without the usual years of studies. How are these treatments working in real time? What's the latest on the vaccines? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local infectious disease specialist to learn more. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. In public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Anchor Systems Hawaii, providing foundation solutions for shifting hillside homes since 1997, including foundation repair, retaining walls, and slope stabilization. More at AnchorSystemsHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the situation at an Arizona prison where more than 1,000 inmates from Hawaii are serving out their sentences. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us this morning. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? Good. So uh, uh, tell us about this. You have uh, news that uh, two Hawaii inmates died at Saguaro Prison? Yeah, actually, uh, this would be the total. The total would be three so far who have been identified as testing positive for COVID-19. Um, but the story is a little bit more complicated than that. Fiatal uh, Micah, age 64, died at the facility on October 20th. And another inmate by the name of Edison Magaspi, who was 61, 
was found dead on his bunk on October 29th. Um, it was unclear that those inmates, it was unclear that they had uh, COVID-19, but in fact, the uh, autopsy reports from the Pinal County um, Medical Examiner's Office revealed that they were positive for COVID-19. What complicates things somewhat is that uh, the Pinal County Medical Examiner ruled that basically gave an opinion that in both cases, the COVID-19 was not a contributor to the deaths of the inmates. And the reason given was that those inmates were both in, in very poor health. Um, uh, factors like diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension um, were, were basically blamed for the deaths as opposed to COVID-19. Okay, so they will not be included in the COVID death count. That's correct. We, we, but Department of Public Safety so far has identified, I shouldn't say identified, has announced that there was one Hawaii inmate at Saguaro uh, who did uh, both test positive for COVID-19 and also died, was ruled to have died of the disease. So now we have three inmates who were infected and died, but only one where the disease was actually blamed for the death. In addition to those inmates, uh, the state of Idaho, who also holds inmates at Saguaro Correctional Center, which is a privately run prison by a company called Core Civic. Um, Idaho has also had an inmate that died, was both tested for positive for COVID-19 and died. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can see how the families here who have loved ones on the mainland, you know, would be concerned because, you know, there there's a large number of our, our uh, uh, community that is incarcerated there. And, and uh, our rates are pretty low here in our prisons, but it's rising on the mainland. Absolutely. And if you look at the numbers, just the raw numbers for what's been going on at Saguaro, the numbers are really substantial. Of the 1,079 inmates at Saguaro, 609 have been infected at the last count. That makes that the largest cluster in the state system, state correctional system. And um, a lot of people, I think maybe more people have heard of what happened at OCCC, which was the largest uh, COVID-19 cluster in the state. That was only 448 inmates. The tested positive at OCCC. So what's happening at Saguaro um, is a very significant uh, spread of the disease. Um, and not only has it spread among the Hawaii inmates, it's spread among Nevada inmates, Idaho inmates, um, and inmates from Kansas. You have, uh, like Kansas keeps about 118 prisoners there. 85 of their inmates so far have tested positive. Um, they haven't had any fatalities that we've, that we've heard of, but Still, that's something on the order of 70% of the inmates who are testing positive. Um, and we've also been told by Core Civic that about 50 of their staff members have tested positive, although about 48 have recovered and have returned to work. So there would seem to be a problem there. Um, when you ask Department of Public Safety about, about what's happening, what we keep hearing over and over again is um, that they are assured by Core Civic that Core Civic is is following the CDC guidance for correctional facilities, um, and is doing everything the right way. And Core Core Civic, not surprisingly, says basically the same thing that this has been a challenge for prisons all over the country, um, and these kinds of stats, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't have a good feel for where else uh, how Core Civic is fared in its other facilities, but um, for Hawaii, these are really high numbers. And we've been hearing, uh, I guess, concern from some families uh, because, you know, they have information that uh, there may be more Hawaii inmates being sent to other prisons on the mainland, and they're concerned. They're worried. No, that's and, and it's tricky because the Department of Public Safety, for obvious security, security reasons, will never confirm that, that a movement is about to happen. But that's exactly what we're hearing from inmate families, that they are concerned that there are another group of, you know, perhaps as many as several hundred inmates would be moved from Halaba to Sorrel Correctional Center, and that they also would be put in jeopardy of, of infections. And one of the things to keep in mind that a lot of people don't know, I think, is that when you talk to people who've worked in the healthcare system at correctional facilities, inmates' health care um, is not, their, their physical health is poor. Um, you tend to have a lot of people, some people who've lived on the street, some people who've been using drugs for substantial periods of time and have basically damaged their bodies, uh, damaged their physique, and, and they're not doing well. Um, in other cases, of course, like these, these prisoners that we just talked about, you know, there's, there's uh, chronic diseases that, that could very quickly escalate into a, a, a fatality uh, if these people do contract uh, COVID-19. So how did you uh, track down these two latest deaths? The, uh, it's, it's a curious thing. Um, Department of Public Safety um, takes the position that they cannot 
will not announce, they, uh, I should back up, they do not announce when an inmate dies in the state correctional system as, as a, a matter of course. Other state systems do. Other state systems have looked at it and said, when an inmate dies in state custody, we ought to let the public know because that's of public interest and of public importance. Hawaii hasn't taken that approach. Um, Hawaii has will sometimes announce a death in the prison system. For example, that inmate that I mentioned in November uh, who died of COVID-19, they didn't identify the inmate, but they did say that, that he died. These other two inmates, they, they didn't publicly announce them. Um, what ends up happening is because they keep a count, they post a regular count of the number of inmates that are at Saguaro Correctional Center on a website. Every so often, I'd say about every two weeks, they update that count. And if you happen to notice that the count has gone down by one, uh-huh. that's an indication that something has happened to somebody. All right. um, and then if you call them, they'll tell you, uh, yes, we had a death or we had a transfer or whatever. But that's the standard way at the moment of finding out whether someone has passed. Okay. Well, uh, good on your eagle eyes. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. All right. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You know, the pandemic has seen many try their hand at backyard gardening, but how about gardening in space? Well, here's your Monday Stargazer with HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and troubled planet. And as usual, we are so thankful to be guided through our journey with astronomer Christopher Phillips. And wouldn't you know it, we've got him on the line, too. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week, stargazers, keep your eyes to the skies for Jupiter and Saturn, which can both be seen in the west until they set around about 10 p.m. Mars is also visible in the south until it sets in the early morning. The moon this week is approaching its new moon phase, so will become a lesser presence in our skies towards week's end. Now, here's one for everybody out there who likes to do a little bit of gardening here and there, sometimes growing a little bit of food. I understand you've got an update on doing that on the space station. Yep, very good news from the International Space Station this week. Astronauts have successfully grown complete edible radishes in the microgravity environment of near-Earth orbit. With a lot of talk about crewed missions to both the Moon and Mars also in the headlines, this is welcome news for any astro-cuisine that may be served on future spaceflights. And it's funny because when you're thinking about space food and the stuff is dehydrated and they would even sell some of that down here just because of the novelty effect. Explain what they're really eating up there, Chris. Well, you can't be blamed for thinking that space food is gross. After all, for years, we've been seeing types of things you've just described. Featureless pastes from nondescript packets that are supposed to taste like vegetables, proteins and stuff like that. But... Times are changing in the astro-culinary world, and being able to grow fresh fruits and vegetables in a hydroponic setting is a game-changer, especially for sustaining human beings in space. And most recently, an astronaut was able to eat an entire cheeseburger on the International Space Station. And a lot of this feeds into that sense of well-being. It's If you can have people have a more normal routine up there, then they might have a more psychologically balanced uh, way of performing their mission. Absolutely. As you know, space travel is both physically and mentally demanding, and being able to put nutritious, good-tasting foodstuffs on the plates of hard-working astronauts will help alleviate some of the stress. How long does it take to get to the space station, actually? Oh, just a few hours. I guess you literally could send up a hot pizza, and it would still be sort of lukewarm when it got there. It would be the most expensive pizza <laughs> delivery ever made. <laughs> Christopher Phillips and a uh, fun and light stargazer today, which we need with all the heavy news that we've been getting recently. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com
today's Backyard Quiz, we look back at the days when martial law was in effect in Hawaii. From December 1941 to October 1944, the islands were an armed camp with Iolani Palace barricaded and surrounded by trenches and blackout wardens patrolling the streets. News media and mail were censored, business hours restricted, and strict rationing enforced for food and gasoline. The chief enforcer was the military governor. The laws were known as general orders, and there were military tribunals, not courts, with no right of appeal. The island's Japanese population was especially targeted, and many were arrested on suspicion of spying for the enemy, but no one was ever convicted. Today, we asked you who took power following the Pearl Harbor attack. The man in charge, in lieu of the governor, was Lieutenant General William Short. Uh, We had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. commemorate the attack on Pearl Harbor Naval Base that plunged the nation into war so many years ago, we often hear from the servicemen who set off to fight the war. Well, today we hear from Kaimuki resident Mildred Ho. She was just 14 when the war broke out, and she was able to see firsthand the spectacle of the attack and the ways it affected territorial Hawaii in the ensuing years. Thanks to our friends at the University of Hawaii Center for Oral History, you'll hear a portion of the interview conducted with Mildred just last year. The conversation's producer, Harrison Patino, brings us this look from the past. In the waning days of 1941, 14-year-old Mildred Ho of Kaimuki was living out a typical teenage existence. She attended Roosevelt High School during the week and spent much of her time on the weekends with friends, and in all, remembers those days fondly. In the early hours of December 7th, however, Mildred awoke to a spectacle unlike anything she had ever seen. Normally, the sound of explosives was of no great consequence to Mildred. With war raging across much of the world, the noise generated from army training, naval exercises, and mock explosives were as common to her as the traffic sounds of the busy street on which she lived. But when she climbed onto the roof of her 10th Avenue home and looked out across the coast for the source of a series of thunderous booms she initially thought to be fireworks, Mildred saw something else. Pearl Harbor Naval Base was engulfed in flames. Here, Mildred recalls the events leading up to her first-hand account of when the nation was plunged into war. It was Sunday morning, and that Saturday night, my mother, who's a schoolteacher, she had a pay increase, so they were going to celebrate. My mother and father loved to dance, and there were only two dine-and-dance places. One was Leroy's in Waikiki, and the other was out in Schofield at a place called Kimu Farms. And so they planned to go with two other couples and celebrate the pay raise. All teachers were celebrating. And uh, they said, we had a live-in maid, Shizue, because both mom and dad worked all the time. And they told Shizue and my brother, who was three years younger than myself, I was 14, he was 11, don't wake mom and dad up. We want to sleep in tomorrow morning because we're going dancing. We'll come home very late. So everybody's fine, normal night. Saturday night we went to bed. Well, every Sunday for I don't know how many years, but the military would have practice exercises because things weren't, I mean, the war was going on in Europe, and uh, so they had military practice, and we always heard dull bombing and could see dark clouds down by Pearl Harbor. But this morning, we heard loud sounds. And so my brother and I were up. So we said, gosh, it's really loud. We pulled out this ladder, climbed up to the roof, and we said, oh, my, lots of fire. We could see lots of flames and lots of planes flying around. We said, this is really good stuff. You know, what a great practice. So it kept on. So we ran down, got down, ran to my mother's room, father's room, pounded on the door, and they said, we told you not to wake us up. Go back to bed or tell Shizui to feed you. So we went back up on the roof, 
It was too exciting to leave. The next thing I knew, my mother came screaming out that side door, and she said, get back in here, get back in here, we're at war. Meant nothing to us. It was so exciting, these fireworks. So we went back in, and she said, a Calabash aunt that she had gone to school with, her brother was a policeman down on the windward side, and he called and said, Florence and Yen, America is at war with Japan, and they've attacked Pearl Harbor. So all those flames we saw were really real. And he said, grab the family and go up to the hills. Get up as high as you can into the mountains because we may be invaded. Mildred recounts the initial changes to her way of life, a territory on high alert as war loomed in the Pacific. And while she could sense the concern of her parents and elders at the time, Mildred remembers the war years fondly. She recalls that she was lucky to have two supportive and industrious parents who did their best to shield Mildred and her brother from the austerity of wartime rationing and sacrifices. So then my father, he was a veteran of World War I. He was immediately called to duty. He belonged to Cow Tom Post, and as many veterans as there were were all called to duty. And so Papa was given a rifle and a hard hat and stood guard on the grounds of Iolani Palace downtown in the Civic Center for longer than a week. But he did come home after that week, and we came home from Palolo Elementary School. By then, military martial law had been proclaimed. And so every night by 8 o'clock, your homes had to be perfectly darkened. So we had our windows taped, and no streak of light could come out. No one could be on the streets. And so we came home. I have to tell you that even in talking about Pearl Harbor, through all that time as a 14-year-old, 14, 15, 16, I never personally had any of the terror or fear, anything, no worries, no nothing. My parents were wonderful parents. They shielded us from anything, rationing. And it wasn't until after the war that I began to meet people, my cousins, male cousins, and that I began to realize how terrible war is. I mean, death. We never thought about all the thousands dying. So they were happy days for us, really fun in a way, except that we always could tell by mom and dad's face that things were serious. So we had rationing. My father raised chickens and rabbits. So we never were without meat. We had a big property, so he had planted broccoli and carrots and cucumbers and everything like that. Uh, sugar was rationed, rice was rationed, meat, different things, staples were rationed. But we never were without. And though she didn't fully understand the scope of what was happening then, Mildred Ho was aware of the internment of Japanese-American citizens and the effect it had on her community. We had martial law all that time because the war was still going on. And when it came to the December 7th attack, immediately two of my closest friends later that I met at the UH, because I came to the University of Hawaii for one year, no one could leave the island. Even though we graduated from high school, we, no one was allowed to leave because they thought that the submarine, Japanese submarines in the Pacific, would not have known that VE Day had happened and would not honor it. So nobody could leave, and the top Japanese leaders, whether they were in business or education or politics or anything, all were taken off the island. They were relocated to the mainland. And it happened then when I went to the University of Hawaii, my two friends there, my best friends, I only was there one year, but they became my best friends. One's father from Pune ne Maui was a school principal, also of a Japanese school. He immediately was taken off island. The other one, her father was the owner of the largest trading business. And later on, there was a big store in Alamoana Shopping Center. But those two men are men that I personally knew. They were immediately taken off island. We didn't know what this whole thing was. I felt, well, of course, every Japanese should go. I don't care if they were, we were fighting Chinese. 
I would expect them to make all the Chinese leaders go, because you don't know who is with you or who's against you. But within two weeks, these two men were sent back. So it didn't just happen at large. It did, but they did send back. So they came back to Hawaii. So those were my two best friends at that time. All in all, while the December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor was a startling introduction to the war years for Mildred Ho, she looks on those times warmly. As a child, she couldn't understand the full scale of what the Second World War truly meant. Only in looking back does Mildred Ho realize how lucky she was to have had a supportive family, a safe home, and a newfound sense of national purpose. Most of all, Mildred recalls the importance of community in those days, a memory that resonates with her most strongly today through a song. Hohana, sing the song of the soil, of the people who toil. That's us, that's us. So it was fun. We remember that to this day. Now, there are not too many people living from my time, but those who do, do remember that. That was lifelong Oahu resident Mildred Ho in an interview conducted last year by the UH Center for Oral History. She shared her story as we commemorate the 79th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we hear about the film Waikiki and all the buzz that it's creating. Do you have a story idea to share? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation. Head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.